0: Thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, It's a, a really fun time for me to have the chance to exchange views on a topic that I care about very passionately. I'm going to start off by making an argument that I hope is somewhat controversial. And that argument is that we've all heard about how George Bush and the United States over the last couple of years have turned into the new imperialists. And I'm going to tell you that that new imperialism isn't really so new. That what the Bush administration has been doing over the last couple of years is really just an extension with a twist to what the international community as a whole, as represented by the UN Security Council, has been doing for about the last 10 years. Um, And the reason for that is that international peacekeeping has fundamentally changed. It used to be back in the old days that peacekeeping was about taking a bunch of military forces from small neutral countries and just interposing them in between two states that had already agreed that they were going to stop fighting each other a ceasefire was already reached and the goal of having the peacekeeping forces come in was just to try to ensure that that agreement got kept and so they'd monitor what happened between the two sides but they didn't really get involved very much in the politics of what was happening. And in about the early to mid-1990s, that really started to change very drastically because all of a sudden, with the end of the Cold War, it turned out that a lot of the fighting that was happening was not going on between states. It was civil wars within states. The international community got very concerned about the human rights violations and humanitarian concerns that were involved in these conflicts and decided that rather than just monitoring peace between countries, what they had to be concerned about was building long-term peace. And the way that you built long-term peace was not just to put military forces in to, to patrol things, um, but to try to change the political situations in the countries that had been at war Uh, to make them more peaceful in the future. In particular, by turning them in a more liberal democratic uh, direction than what they had previously been. And so what's been happening ever since the mid-1990s is that the international community has gone in through the UN Security Council to do peacekeeping where part of the fundamental purpose has been to try to exert some level of control over political developments in foreign societies. And in particular, to try to convince those societies to move in a more liberal democratic direction that they would not have taken on their own without facing the pressure from the international community. The problem that's been faced over and over again in these events is that the international community has not been able to take these actions very consistently. Let me give you some examples. In Bosnia, since 1995, There has been an effort to have a new state uh, go into effect that would be a much more liberal democratic state than the kind of situation you had on the ground in Bosnia during the Yugoslavian civil wars where you had ethnic groups fighting each other, uh, conducting ethnic cleansing, uh, just huge amounts of human rights problems. And it's been done through what's called the Dayton Accords, the peace agreement that was reached at the end of the fighting in Bosnia. And one of the things that the Dayton Accords did Was to set up an international office that's called the Office of the High Representative. And the purpose of that office is to try to make sure that the Dayton Accords get implemented. Part of what that involves is overseeing the constitutional process in Bosnia, making sure that things run smoothly. But part of what that means is making sure that the country stays on a relatively liberal trajectory. And what it has meant in practice is that several times the Office of the High Representative has kicked out of office people who have been completely freely and fairly democratically elected and in addition has kicked out of office appointees of people who have been completely freely and fairly democratically elected if the people who were freely and fairly democratically elected adopted policies that were illiberal that uh, would have furthered uh, uh, nasty ethnic policies or if they were people who were corrupt. And so, as a result, you have an office in place that says our our goal is to move Bosnia in a liberal democratic direction, but you have, in a sense, one hand working against the other hand, with the Office of the High Representative taking actions that are designed to make Bosnia liberal, even if it's done at the cost of uh, causing Bosnia to become a fully independent democracy. What about Kosovo? The international community has been in a trusteeship role, more or less, in Kosovo since 1999. Kosovo to this day is still officially a province of Greater Serbia, Um, but up until now there has been no allowance for the people of Kosovo to say for themselves what they would like Kosovo's future to be. There's been no consideration of any final status for Kosovo. And so it's remained very ambiguous whether kosovo will become eventually a functioning province of serbia or whether kosovo will have complete independence as a state or whether something else will happen and the reason that the international community has been reluctant to have a popular vote on this is because ethnic cleansing in Kosovo following the war has meant that there's almost no Serbian population left in Kosovar territory. It used to be uh, a fairly even balance at particular times in history, and now it's over 80% Albanian. Um, And the fear is that if they had a popular vote, um, the Kosovars would immediately ask for independence um, and that this would create a negative precedent because if you had one province being allowed to determine that it wanted independence, It would encourage other provinces elsewhere in the world to break off from their countries and go in the same direction. Now, there's supposed to be some sort of final status referendum on Kosovo next year, but in the meantime, it's meant that for the last five years, there hasn't really been any institutional consolidation in Kosovo. Because even though you've had elections and even though you've had a government that is supposedly functioning, the people there really don't have an incentive to put much effort into consolidating anything because it's not clear how permanent it's going to be. Why put the effort into making an institution that may not be around for the long term? What about East Timor? We're no longer in East Timor as the international community, but certainly we were there also in a trusteeship role for several years. And it turns out that there were a lot of complaints that the United Nations did not allow the East Timorese population to express its own wishes about what it wanted its government to look like. The United Nations had the idea that it had the expertise. It had done this other places in the world. It knew what it was doing. It knew how to set up government bureaucracies, and it was going to do it. But as a result, for several years, the East Timorese population really felt as though it didn't have much say in the state that was being formed in East Timor. Well, now Timor-Leste, the new state that has been formed there, is functioning. But it turns out that it's very hard for that state to have a functioning economy, and it's almost completely dependent on foreign assistance for its operating budget. And so the international community has created this new state, and it now has independence, but it's sort of been left to hang because it's still dependent on outside help. It turns out that in addition to these problems of inconsistency and planning that doesn't always work very well in trying to move states in a liberal democratic direction, the international community has not been very good at providing security for the populations that are at risk in these countries. And I think we see two examples of that today. One is Haiti. In 1994, the United States went into Haiti. It said, we are going to reinstall the democratic government here. We are going to ensure that it has a functioning constitution and that it is a country that can function by itself. And then we're going to hand it off to the United Nations. And after being there for several months, that's exactly what the United States did. Um, It stopped paying much attention to the country, and as a result, what we see 10 years later is that the country is not really in any better shape than it was back in 1994. It is still absolutely rent by violence. It is still filled with poverty and all kinds of social problems. Um, And so what happened in 2004 is that the international community had to send a peacekeeping force in again to Haiti. And what we're discovering now is that the United States stayed in for only a few months No other powerful state came in and said, we care about Haiti's future, and so we're going to provide security. And as a result, as we speak, Haiti is falling into absolute anarchy. Um, The situation in the last couple of weeks is that the UN force that is currently deployed in Haiti is about half the strength it's supposed to be at, so there are not enough uh, uh, either international military forces or police to keep order in the country. Haiti's been hit by a series of disasters coming from hurricanes that have gone through and then all of a sudden the violence has started to spiral up again Um, and in the last couple of days in particular we've had cases of lots of policemen being beheaded Um, and the people who are doing the beheading are saying that they are following the Baghdad example, uh, that they are learning from violence elsewhere in the world to create violence and mayhem in Haiti. The second current example is Afghanistan. We've just heard that Afghanistan has had successful presidential elections, and Karzai came out ahead, and this was great news for the country, except that the country of Afghanistan is incredibly insecure. I was there for a week in May, and I can tell you that people are not able to go about their ordinary lives, even in Kabul. I was with the Canadian forces, who at that time were leading the peace mission in Kabul, and I went out on four patrols with them as they were going out into the city and the surrounding villages and we heard many stories about merchants who have to sleep in their stores at night carrying guns because they are otherwise burglarized and they believe that the local police forces are cooperating in the burglaries. We heard stories about refugees who are working at one place in the city and need to go back home at night to the refugee camps. They go back in trucks and the local police stop them and extort them for money. These people who are incredibly impoverished Um, have to pay money to the police to get transported back home again after their day jobs because the police forces are so corrupt. So that's a situation where you have to ask yourself exactly what does a successful presidential election mean, especially since Karzai is thought to be essentially the mayor of Kabul. He doesn't really have much control outside of the city limits of Kabul. The country is being run by warlords, and yet we've had a successful presidential election. Well, the reason I wrote this book is because I saw a pattern happening in Afghanistan in late 2001 um, and I thought it really was time for the international community to sort of be shaken up um, and taught that maybe it needs to change its priorities, that rather than trying to put all of these resources into ensuring political futures in countries where the international community is outsiders, where we should be putting our resources instead is to provide basic security for these countries that have undergone terrible uh, situations so that they can get themselves up and running as just normal states. And so what I did is to go back and look at the example of empire to see if there were any lessons that could be drawn from that example. And in particular, I was interested in looking at the kind of empire that was practiced by liberal democratic states at the turn of the 20th century. I thought there were some interesting similarities between that situation and the situation of UN peacekeeping operations as it's evolved over the last ten years. Now obviously I'm not saying that the UN is trying to go in and steal resources from the countries where it's based. There's no question that Empire 100 years ago was about stealing resources. And obviously another major difference is that when the United Nations goes in today, these operations are multilateral. They're not being led by a single state who's trying to get control. And in fact, the challenge is to try to get multiple states to all participate and send their military forces. But I think there's still some interesting similarities that we should keep in mind. A hundred years ago, Um, states that were leading empires had a very strong need to provide security in the areas that they had colonies in. And this was a change from how things had operated before because they decided that they needed to occupy that territory for the sake of their own security concerns elsewhere in the world. In particular, they were very afraid in Europe and in the United States that there would be a situation in the near future where they would be going to war against other great powers. And they thought they needed access to ocean ports and access to raw materials in the event that they were competing against each other in a militarized situation. Well, to ensure that access, what did that mean that they, they needed? What they needed was situations that were stable enough that they could put in their own government representatives to permanently occupy the area. And that meant that what essentially they needed to do was figure out how to do peacekeeping in these areas where they wanted to have a constant presence. It was not so much about profit at this time in history. A couple of the colonies were profitable, but in most cases the governments were actually losing money on keeping them going. It was being done for security reasons, for prestige reasons, not so much for profit. And I think you see the same thing today in sort of an odd twist. You don't fear that you're going to be uh, battling against another country and want to have access to raw materials in these peace-kept states. But I think the areas where the international community, led by powerful states, has decided to go in and try to keep the peace have only been areas where they think their own security interests are at stake. Usually it involves threats of refugees coming over borders. Sometimes more recently, as in Afghanistan, it's involved threats of uh, terrorist acts. um, But there's always some security concern involved. And if anybody has any doubts and believes that really what's going on is pure humanitarianism, The counterexamples that I would bring up are Rwanda in 1994 where you had 800,000 people who were murdered in the space of several months and there was almost no reaction from the international community, no effort to bring in a very strong military force to provide humanitarian assistance. And today what we're seeing in Sudan, in Darfur, which a lot of people have said bears a striking resemblance to the situation in Rwanda, where the international community talks, in this case talking even more than they did about Rwanda, um, but not really doing anything in terms of providing any kind of security force that could come in and protect the population. So that's the first similarity. Security was a concern. The second similarity is that during the time of empire, those imperial states coming from a liberal tradition, so in the book I look at Great Britain and France and the United States, really believed they were doing good in their colonies. And you can look at that and say, oh, what incredible hypocrites that they would have believed such a thing, given what was actually going on on the ground. Um, But keep in mind that the French believed that they were sharing culture, they were sharing the achievements of their civilization that would make these backward countries look more like France and that that would be good for the populations of those countries. The British believed that they were holding these countries in trusteeship preparing them for eventual independence and just giving them help along the way so that they could become more developed countries. The United States believed it was going to bring democracy to the Philippines and provide a good alternative to the Spanish despotism that they said had been there previously. And even if you believe that they were hypocritical for saying that this is what they were doing, keep one very important thing in mind. These were liberal democracies. And what that meant is that the leaders of these imperial states had to convince their home populations that they were doing something that was benefiting the home populations. And the home populations wanted to think of themselves, um, for the most part, as being good Christians who were doing good things. And so in their view, the reason for the colonies was in fact to bring the benefits of Western civilization to people who could benefit from it. Um, And in fact, if you think about it, If you want to occupy territory and keep peace in that territory, it makes sense that you want to bring benefits to that territory. You want to make the people who are in that territory feel like your empire is doing something good for them. Because it's very expensive and very difficult to have to be fighting wars all the time. It's much better if you can convince the people that you're occupying, that your occupation does them some good, because then they'll welcome you instead of trying to fight you all the time. And they believed that development would bring stability and wealth and help make the colonies pay for themselves as well. But it turns out that usually it didn't work very well, even if we accept that they had good intentions. Um, The after effects of colonialism, for the most part, were pretty poor. Now, Neal Ferguson is convinced that the British Empire did good things. He's the one who's written this very controversial set of books, arguing that the after effects of the British Empire um, turned out to be pretty good because the British installed well-functioning institutions in places like India. And you can argue that maybe India is a case where there is a functioning democracy. It may have its flaws, but as democracies go, it's not in completely bad shape. It's in pretty good shape. But I would just ask you to keep in mind that that same colony of British India also produced Pakistan, which has had a series of military coups over history, currently has a military government, um, and still has a population that is very sympathetic in many ways to the Islamist radicals um, who uh, were working with the Taliban. Um, and so it's not exactly uh, a case where democracy has triumphed. And one of the reasons that things didn't work so well for even the the relatively well-intentioned imperial states was a lack of consistency. Their security was at stake in these areas, but these areas were not as important to them as what they saw as the main mission, which is preparing for future warfare in Europe. And at that time in history, of course, communication was not very good. And what that meant is that instead of paying a great deal of attention to what was going on in the colonies, the capitals tended to rely on what was called the man on the spot. The person who was there usually a military officer who could report back to them about what the situation was um, and convince them that things were moving in a particular direction and uh, what that meant is that oftentimes the good intentions of the home countries didn't get realized in the countries involved because there was a disconnect between what the intentions were and what actually happened on the ground and there were several really egregious examples of this. Um, one of the worst was probably Leonard Wood, a general from the United States, who was commanding the occupation force in the Philippines. And the US population at home believed that the Philippines was moving in the direction of a democracy, that military force use was being limited in the country. Um, and it turned out that in fighting against insurgents in Mindanao, Leonard Wood decided that one thing that he should do was try to get rid of them at the, uh, opportun- as the opportunity presented itself. And so when there was a political meeting that involved families um, that happened at a traditional location inside a volcanic crater, he had his troops stationed around the outside of the crater, all with machine guns, and instructed them to mow down everybody who was at the political meeting with machine guns. And in fact, they did that and killed several hundred people, including lots of women and children who had nothing to do actively with the insurgency itself. Um, and when this got reported in the United States, there was lots of press investigation, there was lots of outrage coming from the population, uh, but Teddy Roosevelt, who was president at the time, decided that he had done a good thing in terms of ensuring U.S. security interests and promoted him. Um, well, today we don't have that kind of thing hope happening that often on peacekeeping operations, although I think you might uh, take the example of something like Abu Ghraib, and say that the people who were involved in what really amounted to a peace operation in post-war Iraq uh, did not have enough oversight, were not sufficiently well-trained, and therefore did not uh, do the kinds of things that the American public would have liked to see them do. But I think lack of consistency has worked against us in other ways. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book that is devoted to inconsistencies in policies in the Balkans in particular. Um, that come about basically because the military forces on the ground these days are not empowered to do enough of the work that would actually provide security. It's it's almost a reverse of the imperial situation. Rather than the military forces doing too much, they're doing too little. They are discouraged from doing police work. They're uh, discouraged from mission creep. Um, And the result is that oftentimes they end up not accomplishing enough, even though they're stationed in the field well does imperial history teach us that all the things are are bad that all the lessons that we can take uh, from the history of, of military occupation in the past is negative i think the answer is no one thing we do learn from imperial history is that when militaries are carefully watched when they are rewarded for doing it they actually do a very good job of policing and constabulary work and of avoiding too much use of military force they're actually pretty good at doing policing Um, uh, And this was especially true of troops in the British Empire, uh, but it was also true of U.S. troops in the more settled areas of the Philippines, not in Mindanao where they were facing rebels, um, but in the areas that were relatively peaceful. Um, And I think that this is, is significant because you often hear people in the Pentagon today saying that the military shouldn't be doing peacekeeping, that there is this divide between military work and police work. Um, and that the, the twain shall never meet, and other people can do peacekeeping, but the U.S. military should just be focused on deterring, fighting, and winning the nation's wars. And the argument that I would like to make is that that's a really outdated idea because these days the United States is facing itself with more and more situations where it's not important just to win a war. It's important to win the peace that comes after the war, and that means we have to put more effort into training troops, Um, and rewarding troops for doing police and constabulary kind of work. Things like street patrols, things like riot control um, in situations where the societies don't have functioning police forces themselves and there are not enough police coming in from the international community. Well, why do I believe that this is possible? I believe that this is possible because of two examples in particular the australians in east timor and one that i observed personally which was the canadians in afghanistan and i think it's it's probably telling that both of these examples come from militaries that were in the british commonwealth and in fact they cite the historical lessons that they are taught from the imperial era as being something that makes them both effective peacekeepers and effective war fighters, And Australia and Canada have been two of the United States' closest allies um, in war fighting that's happened in recent years as well. Well, what did the Canadians do particularly well on the patrols that I went on with them? They did a very good job of reaching out to the local population. In particular, at one point we had tea with the elders of a refugee camp for an hour. We just sat in a tent with the elders of a refugee tent, uh, camp Uh, to, to understand what their problems were, what kinds of things they were encountering. And that's where the Canadians heard about the extortion that was happening with the vehicles. On the patrols at night, they did a night patrol through Kabul that I accompanied them on, and they talked to merchants along the way, and they found out particular areas of the city that were particularly plagued by crime, which gave them information about where they had to step up their patrols, where they had to show more of a presence to convince the the bad guys that being bad there wasn't something that was going to pay because the Canadians would be watching them. And all of these things were designed not merely for the purpose of bringing security to the country, Um, but also for the sake of having the, the local population believe that the Canadians were doing something for their benefit. Um, And it paid off because where the Canadians were stationed in their camp, it turned out that there was a palace on one side of the camp and one member of the local population came to them and said, hey, do you know that there are approximately a dozen mortars that are pointing out of the basement of this building at your military camp? And the Canadians had not known about that. When they heard about it, they could go in and get rid of that particular problem that was threatening them. And they really attribute the fact that they've done this outreach to the population to getting that intelligence that helped them do their job better and protect themselves. The local population really seemed to like the fact that the Canadians were there. They thought they were making a difference. And the argument that I'd like to make to you is that this is where the United States should be focusing its military activities at the moment. We should be focusing more on making sure that we're not only able to win wars which is at this point fairly trivial given the amazing technological superiority and resource superiority that the u.s military has in comparison to any of its potential enemies we need to focus more on winning the peace and winning the peace means focusing less on trying to impose political outcomes on societies where we don't really always understand uh, what the underlying factors are Um, that make those societies look the way that they are and instead to focus on providing security to populations that have been horribly battered by years of warfare. Thank you.
1: questions at the core of Professor Martin's work are extremely timely. They're very central to contemporary policy questions, both for the UN and for the US. And uh, it's unusual for me as an anthropologist to be jumping into the fray discussing matters of such things. I want to begin saying something about disciplinary difference and how it shapes the way I'm thinking about what I'm going to say uh, in a couple of dimensions, but I want to begin with a story. I uh, I teach a course on military theory and practice, though I am an anthropologist. This is very unusual for an anthropologist, but uh, uh, one of the strange things about the course, which gets a very large enrollment, is that it's not the kind of enrollment, it's not the very large enrollment you might get in an anthropology class that's anthropology students. It's mostly students from other disciplines, and I uh, learned a lot about the students from political science and from uh, the graduate program in the Committee on International Relations, the first time I assigned an essay, which was to discuss Clausewitz's theory of uncertainty and friction in relation to his critique of Kant's approach to concepts and reality. And uh, did I get papers describing Clausewitz's realism? Well, sort of, but I got an extraordinary number of papers about what the United States should do next in its foreign policy. All right? And I discovered that that's the only topic that there is for work in the discipline that some of these students were coming from, that no matter what the question was, that's also the question. So for me, it's a high irony that tonight that is the question, okay? I'm not used to that in the way I talk and the issues that I bring to the table, or if I bring it up, it's, it's not the necessary topic. And I want to um, direct half my remarks on intervention in those terms, uh, and the other half on intervention in really very different terms, for the other side of the coin that we don't usually see when that's what we think about. So although I know that's the topic, it's only really going to be half the perspective I want to suggest to you. Uh, from an anthropological point of view, realism in political science has a reality problem. Uh, it's an interesting Genre realism, as practiced in international relations. Uh, it's really a comment on moral philosophy, as far as I can glean talking to practitioners. I don't know what Professor Martin thinks about this. I, I haven't asked her. But most of the practitioners of realism in uh, political science I talk to, uh, uh, I, I seem to agree with this, that it's really making a statement about what's not going to guide and what is going to guide the kind of advice for what American foreign policy should be will come out, that it's not going to be guided by an absolute commitment to one or another value, but rather by really uh, uh, scientific attention to outcomes. And that that has to be the criterion, what's possible and among what's possible, what's, what's desirable. And I, I, uh, I think that it's very important to look at that, uh, that dimension of this whole discipline it's not realism in the sense that an anthropologist would would address realism and it lends itself towards toward games toward generalizations towards a a look for a universal or a thinner description in a general sense of what's possible as against really facing the full complexity of reality in the face and actually looking so we're both realists i think in a a certain fashion but in, in very different fashions and Anthropology usually isn't called to question to make a synthetic statement about what is to be done. Uh, there's a historical realism to both of our positions, but of a, of a different sort. And my work usually deals in places as small as the Fiji Islands or as distant as India or Burma, and uh, looks at solutions that are really locally rather than, than globally oriented, which makes the way I want to approach this really very different. There's another dimension of this that's very interesting that I want to say, and it's going to be my last prefatory comment. Uh, my work is overwhelmingly oriented by colonialism and post-coloniality. And Professor Martin's work is overwhelmingly oriented by the Cold War and its aftermath, which again is disciplinarily easy to understand why and how it got set up this way. But it leads us to understand the dynamics of the present in very different coordinates and ways that I want to come back to. Now, Professor Martin focuses on the fact that the new imperialism is actually uh, not an American invention and not really an imperialism, but an extension of changes in UN policy that have come with the end of the Cold War. And I would I'll add immediately that I think is entirely true, and I also think it's coming at a specific moment in the history of decolonization, which is the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. Or of, but we're at a point where the new nations aren't so new anymore, the ones that were created in the massive, massive decolonization of the world uh, following World War II. The problems they have are not the problems of the first transition anymore. There are other kinds of problems, and we need to look at what these nation-states really are and what decolonization was and wasn't about in a different light. Uh, The solutions we've seen so far to the problems in these societies are uh, because new states are left to hang Uh, there are security problems unresolved situations of violence one hand working against the other hand whether it's the u.n or the u.s Uh, problems like police extortion which is a very very interesting problem to think about how and why is it happening when the police or the military in a place like say burma suddenly become the number one problem for the civil society even though they are the government because not only casually or incidentally or secretly, but absolutely at the center of public life, they require constant payoff merely for your right to exist. Uh, The solutions, then? uh, Above all, security. Get these places up and running as normal states. Uh, Especially, again, in the, the pragmatism that goes with realism, we should be aware that these interventions more often happen when there are problems like refugees or terrorism which export from that other place so that we don't have to be naive about the original motives, but we can still hang on to the, uh, the humane outcome of looking at what is really necessary and with the example of the Canadian and the Australians in practice at the ways in which an army can provide policing and help a place uh, uh, settle its, its internal strife. Uh, and the imperial comparison is absolutely not, and this is in one of, there are many things I like very much about Professor Martin's arguments, both here and in the book. I recommend you look at the book uh, in, and buy the book. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very useful discussion of changing U.N. policy on any standard, and this point about the U.N. changing its mode and mission in the 90s is extremely important. I think that this is something to be looked at very seriously. uh, I also like very much the imperial comparison, as she works it out, against all of the uh, nonsense we've been hearing frequently that we're somehow an empire and we're just like the empires. There are very clear demarcations here of how we are and are not like empires, we the United States, we the UN, and the ways in which uh, what against the Niall Ferguson point of view, the uh, lessons of empire are also not nostalgic. It's not, well, we should do it the way they did it, quite the contrary. There's a very clear analysis of what did and did not work and ways in which one should or should not go forward. So in sum, Professor Martin's solution to the question of intervention is prudential, carefully considered, welcome in its avoidance of many contemporary significations, of many contemporary simplifications, largely persuasive, and unfortunately, I have to add, I think, completely doomed, (laughs) uh, if taken by itself. I'm glad you laughed (laughs) rather than throwing things. Completely doomed uh, by itself. Maybe there's some hope if we look at some other garrisoning anarchy. the liberal question of liberal democracy. Don't get involved in building institutions because that's the one hand working against the other and nation building by outsiders or state building by outsiders doesn't work. We want normal states. Well, I want to look at one significant problem in the matchup of concepts and reality here and at one significant omission in the discussion of the dynamics of the model. Uh, as food for thought the significant problem in the matchup is political society's naturalism i'll call it the image that there's a status quo ante where people govern themselves unspecified things go wrong including colonialism as one of of many people are no longer governing themselves or or governing themselves badly and that the solution is to get things back to normal states which means a nation state a place where somehow people govern themselves. And there's a dynamic of government by yourself and government by outsiders. From an anthropological point of view, this is an enormous simplification of actual political and social history in comparison. Most people who've lived on most places on this planet could not articulate whether they do or do not participate in a group that governs themselves. In complex political formations, with governments, whether liberal or not, the idea that nations come naturally, states come naturally when connected to nations, and that this is an obvious solution rather than a very complex architecture that needs to be built and taught, this is a, uh, a, a serious problem. Which means, again, when we're looking at this from a post-colonial point of view, we're actually often looking at situations where structures that are no deeper than decolonization are failing to capture the political imagination of various disparate peoples and yet connected peoples in the territories. Everything you know about Iraq, without going point for point, you could think about in this regard, the Shiites, the the Sunnis, who the Baathists were, what the Kurds really want. And if you just break it down into, no, they each want their own separate nation-state, you're not seeing the point that they did not live in the format of a nation governing itself via a state, nor should we think it obvious that liberal democracy means that's what they should do all right i want to look at that side of it next the other significant slippage that i wanted to point to was uh simplification i think that's in in sad typical and consequential for the the format of this being doomed there tends to be not only here but in the book a glide between the problem of of nation building in places where you build a democracy and the democracy proves illiberal okay You. And nation-building in a democracy where policies arise where it's not that they're against democracy but they're against the occupier. This is a very big difference where you get antagonism towards what? Antagonism why? This Dan Rathers why do they hate us echoing question. To think about what's really going on one if one glides the question of why are there people in the world that hate the United States and translates that into there are different kinds of people who don't like liberal democracy, an enormous and fatal simplification has taken place because your premise is you're the champion of liberal democracy and of what form and is or is not that true. Uh, The format that underlies much of this, I think, relates to the phrase make the world safe. Woodrow Wilson used the phrase make the world safe for democracy in his call to arms to engage the senate and to engage congress in a declaration of war for world war one as a mission versailles became a centerpiece of an american plan to put an end to imperial warfare which was going to chew up the planet and largely did in the course of the first half of the 20th century by limiting the powers of nations and states to make war forbidding it in fact by the end of world war ii and instead constituting a form of sovereignty where the only legitimate grammar for sovereignty is a nation, and the only legitimate, legitimate scope for sovereignty is the space of that nation as a territory with its own state. This is actually a major limitation of collected political will and is not isomorphous with liberal democracy, which could take much larger forms as well as much more local forms. It's not the only solution to the question of how to be democratic or how to be liberal. But it became very much the target of American foreign policy to make the world safe in that fashion. We got a much more restricted definition of the mission in many ominous way, in an ominous way articulated by Leo Strauss, who is now so influential with factions in the State Department, to make the world safe for the Western democracies. Now to be fair to Strauss, he articulated global democratization as the long-term essential means for that. But notice the shift of target. Of ends and means to make the world safe for the liberal democracies to make the world safe for the western democracies is a very different mission than to make the world safe for democracy in general now professor martin is completely correct that teaching democratic order involves impositions but what i want to finish with is this question looking at what constitutes the expression and extension of liberal democracy today with the other side of the coin the problem is frequently articulated as the difference of them from us us being either the the u.s or liberal democrats generally and the problem is they're different from us and what about the problem in the you know we heard the story it's one of her success stories it makes it particularly telling to refer to back to east timor a state that's one of the places where the australians are doing the best that can be done in policing intervention yet it's not taking off. The Rostow model, no one believes it anymore, that it will just take off if we get the place on the right track. What is to be done then? Is there a solution in the format of the nation-state to the problems of East Timor? Now just garrisoning them and keeping them secure, if this becomes a perpetual mission, is in fact going back to Smuts's plan that was part of the League of Nations mandate, that they are parts of the planet that can never rule themselves. But is there a solution that's beyond self-determination that involves an extension of liberal democracy, not just self-determination, but our division of labor extends way beyond these nations and states. Why don't we collectively participate in consequential political deliberation on this planet? Um, Page 13 of the book, liberal democratic change cannot be forced on foreign societies using liberal democratic means. I pray that that is not true not so much looking at intervention in the format that is the dominant theme, as if the question is, how, can, how should the United States or the UN intervene in their politics? I don't think there's any solution to the problem beyond Professor Martin's plan for security in terms of what we can do intervening in their politics, because I don't think that's where the problem lies. The problem lies in how can they intervene in our politics? When did these great powers decide to avoid imperial wars with each other to limit everyone's political will to the local, and then some locals don't have the means to make it on their own, when did they get to discuss that social contract or participate in its revision? The United States, in fact, is hysterical about foreign intervention in our domestic politics. Everything you know about campaign finance and Uh, the allegations of, of Chinese money going to Clinton. The planet has an enormous stake on who wins the current election, for example, yet there is no legitimate means for it to express itself. All right? Why would they hate that? Not us now, but why would they hate that? They would have very good prudential, consequential reasons for disliking that political structure. What is to be done then, the solutions I submit are going to involve how they do and don't get to intervene in the politics of the center, not in how we are gonna control our interventions into the localities and the various peripheries of the world. Okay, thank you.
0: Should I, should I respond to that? Yeah. Okay, should I just do it from here rather than keeping us getting up? Um, I really appreciate those comments from Professor Kelly, although some of the things he says, I say I don't recognize as having said, so I do want to go over a couple of those. Um, But just let me say, in general, I'm not sure that I'm a realist. Um, That means something very particular in the discipline of political science that I I don't quite recognize myself as being. Um, But one thing that is true of realism is that it does not describe the world as it should be. It describes the world as it is and urges that rather than Um, having idealistic notions of things that are not actually possible to do we should instead concentrate on looking at reality and figuring out where we can make small differences given that the world is the way that it is and and I would submit that professor Kelly may be right that it would be wonderful if the periphery could intervene in the politics of the states that are the great powers but it's never going to happen And we have seen this just looking at the question of UN Security Council reform. It's supposedly been seriously on the table for at least, what, 15 years at this point. Um, And the idea that the United States is ever going to give up its veto in the United Nations or that the United Nations would continue to function if the U.S. stopped paying attention to it because it didn't have its veto. Neither of those things is a very realistic prospect. So we can talk about it being nice in an ideal world, um, but that doesn't give us many policy suggestions for what to do given that we are in the world that we live in. Just a couple of things that I, I don't quite recognize from his comments. In my talk, I did talk about the importance of states, but in the book itself, in the conclusion, I actually have a lot of sympathy for the notion that we might consider alternatives to the state system um, for countries that do not traditionally have states as being something that comes from uh, their societal understanding of how their politics works. And that brings up all kinds of questions that I don't try to answer in the book, but I do think that that would uh, potentially be one way to, to look at things, to not say that the state is what we have to impose. However, in situations where the security of the United States is very much at stake, in particular in countries like Afghanistan, where we know that Afghan territory was used for purposes that did direct damage to the United States in terms of killing people, some kind of a basic, very basic, functioning state structure is necessary in Afghanistan in order to control the borders because if we don't have somebody in Afghanistan that is able to provide for their own border control, that means that in the future, the second that the international community pulls out of Afghanistan, which I think is probably going to happen sooner rather than later, unfortunately, um, the result is going to be that al-Qaeda or other Islamist groups who are sympathetic to al-Qaeda's aims may just move back in and find a very hospitable territory to continue doing the kind of large-scale planning for terrorist attacks that preceded September 11th. And I think those security concerns are real. Um, And I don't want to say what the Afghan state should look like, But I think it is very important that before outside military forces leave Afghanistan, we ensure that there is something in Afghanistan that can ensure that it is watching the kind of smuggling that's happening and that is watching the kind of uh, transfer of personnel that's happening across borders so that Afghanistan does not once again become an anarchy that can be overtaken by a particular military group that has an, an aim that is oriented against the United States. I was in Manhattan on September 11th. I never want to see that again. Um, The second thing is that um, I don't think I make the argument that they hate us because we're trying to impose liberal democracy on them. Um, In fact, I think a lot of the populations in the countries that are involved in places like Bosnia and Kosovo and Haiti and Afghanistan, would welcome the idea of moving in a more liberal direction, of moving in a direction that has more democracy. That's not why they hate us. Um, I think that the problem is that we're just not very good at trying to make other places look like liberal democracies. And that is because we are coming from liberal democratic states ourselves, not just the United States, but in Europe and elsewhere. And what that means is that we're not consistent in our policy goals. We have too many voices saying what should be. We're not, you know, we're not empires. We're not going in and saying this is the solution we want and we're going to be very consistent in getting to that solution. Um, Instead, when we go in, especially in multilateral situations, it's not merely a variety of states that are involved. It's also a huge variety of non-governmental organizations and various forms of United Nations bureaucracy. And everybody has their own idea about what should be done. And the result is inconsistency. So it's not that we're doing something wrong by suggesting that liberal democracy is a good idea, it's that the the means and the methods that we try to use to do it just don't end up working. And then when we turn around and say, well we're going to try to force it on people anyway by kicking people out of office when they don't do what we want them to do, or by not allowing them to have a referendum because we're the ones who are still in control of the government in this space, Um, I I don't think that that's a solution that makes a lot of sense. That does mean that we're trying to control something where we don't really have the ability to do it very well. On East Timor, I actually talk about that quite significantly in the book, and the problem is not that the Australians did a good job of providing security, um, and look what terrible situation we got because they did such a good job of providing security. The issue is that in 1999, for those several months in 1999, after the Australians went in, they did a terrific job of getting rid of the militia threat in the country and reestablishing security. And then in early 2000, the United Nations moved in and started saying, this is the way your new political system should look, and we're moving in with all of our people who expect to live at a higher standard of living than you can provide for us, so we want you to open cafes where they give cappuccinos to our people, where the cost of the cappuccino, a couple dollars, is more than the, the average. Average weekly wage of the local Timorese population um, and now we're, we're saying that you're taking over your government and so now we've done our job and we're gonna leave and poof you're on your own good luck um, so the problem was not that the Australians did a good job of providing security, it's that we didn't stop after we provided security, it's that we came in and said, we're going to do this better than you could do it on your own, we're going to tell you what to do, we're going to uh, be someone who sets up an economy that's dependent on foreign help during the time that we're here, and then we're going to go home and leave you on your own. So I'm not arguing that that in any way that, that somehow the security keeping didn't work. Um, It's that the security keeping wasn't all that was done, and there was a real disconnect between what the Australian military was doing in those first several months and then what the UN community came in and did. Um, I think I'll stop there um, and take questions, but thank you. This this is an interesting discussion to hear about the, the anthropological perspective on things.